Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. Do you anesthetize children or adults who are terrified of needles? Have you ever wondered whether the words you use during induction of anesthesia or during your preoperative consultations have an impact on your patients and how well that anesthetic goes? Well, in this episode, I take these questions to the experts and we even break down some of the more challenging moments in my anesthetic experience. I'm chatting with Drs. Annette Webb and James Old from the Australian Society of Hypnosis. Annette is a paediatric gastroenterologist and president of the society, and James is a retired dentist who's also an executive member of the society. Both bring a wealth of experience in clinical hypnotherapy. We'll also talk about some of the work of the Australian Society of Hypnosis, and ASA members, I'll share with you some exclusive offers that we have from the Australian Society of Hypnosis at the end of the episode. All right, let's get into it. Thank you for giving up some time today and having this chat with me. Happy to do so. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about how we can help children feel better and that the child is coming to the operating room just feeling more comfortable and relaxed because it's a good outcome for everybody. Oh, definitely. And we, we know that if you do have children who are induced quietly, they do have less incidence of respiratory complications. I wanted to start by asking about this preparation that we can do with children before they come into hospital. It's a case of establishing trust and letting them know that you're there to help them, not to hurt them. And once you have that trust, they will tolerate a lot of things. And that's an excellent point, James. So it depends on the age of the young person. So You'll need to use different techniques, but I think what James has said is absolutely at the core of it. What you need to do is help the parents build a a feeling of trust in the child that they will be taken care of. So what happens is then the amygdala stops firing and the young kid or the adolescent starts to just relax and then everything follows from that. Let's break it down. Let's go through what you might say to preschoolers. Yeah, sure. So you've got to use age-appropriate language and you've got to really start to think as a little kindergarten child. And for them, probably the thing that they're frightened of the most is being apart from their parents. So you may have issues of separation anxiety. You might have these fantasies of what is this place I'm going to and what is going to happen. The principles are the same for the older age groups. It's just relayed in a different way. So do you find that children tend to prefer having information about what's going to happen? I think everybody likes to be prepared because it gives you a sense of mastery and control. Otherwise, if you don't tell someone what's happening, then they'll start to get in their imagination all sorts of things that might or might not happen. So it's better if it comes from the parent about what's going to happen. As you go through the process of saying, this is what's going to happen the day before, this is what's going to happen on the day. This will be what happens when I pick you up. You can then go through and they'll ask you questions. And then if there's nothing they're worried about, you don't have to open it up. But then you'll find if they are worried about something in particular, you can then open that up and then talk about it with an age-appropriate way. So that's potentially one of the things that anaesthetists can do is discuss with parents and give them that detailed information about what's going to happen when their child comes to hospital and perhaps even encouraging their parents to give that information to the child. 
And Annie's Stories is very good for that. So Annie's Stories is a book? Yeah, it's a book by Dr. Doris Brett. So in Annie's Stories, the mother tells Annie a story about going to hospital. And she says, remember that inside the operating room, one of the doctors will give you another shot and then you'll fall fast asleep. And so they reach the door of the operating room. Annie's mum gave her a kiss and said, see you soon. Annie felt a bit worried. But the nurse gave her a little pat and said, don't worry, we'll take good care of you. And she said, you have to promise not to laugh when you see the funny hats the doctors and nurses wear. Are you ready to see them? Look. And she wheeled Annie in. Straight away, Annie knew what she meant by the funny hats. The doctors and nurses were wearing something that looked like shower caps. They did look funny. So it's that kind of story. There's a few things in there. So they didn't mention the N-word, needle, because I hear a lot of people avoiding using that word around children. And I heard that there was a bit of a sense of giving the child some autonomy in that process. Are you ready to come in and have a look at the funny hats? Yes, involving the patient in their own treatment is, is very important. I used to see a number of orthodontic patients and... One of the things I would say to them is, who's the most important person in this treatment? And they'd say, well, you are. And I said, no, I only see you for 15 minutes every five or six weeks. So you're giving them responsibility for their care. And that's some great techniques there. But yet we can still use this sense of autonomy in younger children as well. Absolutely. Once you instill that sense of autonomy in them, they tend to kind of really run with it. And then you can start to use the techniques that will allay some of their fears and anxiety. Yeah, what are some of those techniques? So there's a couple of things that you can do. So this is for the kindergarten age kids. They are often reassured by their parents' voice. And so making a recording of a story, just of a parent's reading their favourite story and then having that with them when they go into the hospital can be very reassuring. So that can be very powerful. The other thing is to give them a sense, something positive to look forward to. So they may get a series of little envelopes with little notes that they have to open at a prescribed time with I love you on it or a little present that they get just before they go in or just when they wake up. So they've got a sense of anticipation that something nice is going to happen. The other thing is to use the olfactory nervous system because it's a very ancient part of the brain and to maybe use a favourite scarf of their mother's, sprayed with a bit of their perfume or their father's cologne, and then they can take that with them and they can hold it and smell it when they're feeling a bit vulnerable. I'm nodding there because one of my favourite induction techniques is to use some chocolate in the mask. Oh, yeah. (laughs) As a dentist, you might be shocked. No, 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 anything that works. For the right children, they find the smell of chocolate incredibly comforting. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, nearly everyone likes chocolate. Yeah, that's fantastic because it it takes them to a favourite place and you can say whatever chocolate is the favourite for you. So using indirect techniques, Ericksonian-type techniques, I wonder what that chocolate will be. Have you been listening to some of my inductions? I'm, you're now unpacking the theory for what I've been doing for a lot of my career because I'll put the chocolate in the mask and I'll start with, is it chocolate cake kind of chocolate? Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Oh, so there you go. That's Ericksonian techniques. I didn't know that. You were doing them just naturally. 
They are very natural. That's good. So that's that using that inquiry to try and trigger yeah. some yeah. very comforting memories. Yeah. yeah. The words I wonder are very powerful because it actually allows them to then go into their own mm. imagination uh, and gives them the power. The other thing that I recommend also is to take a laminated photo of their family so they can slip it in the pillow so that if they're feeling a bit vulnerable, they can pull it out. Also, and then transitional objects such as soft toys. So in Annie's stories, she's going to have her tonsils removed at the hospital. And so her bear gets tonsillitis as well. So before she goes, she's reassuring the bear that it's okay, I'm going to come back and I'll be fine and I'm going to be taken care of. And then she decides I might take that bear with me. And then she takes a second bear that's soft and furry and fuzzy. You know, using all the senses help the child to feel grounded and set secure and they're all self-soothing strategies. I'm nodding my head there because I think a teddy bear has saved an induction quite a few times for me as well. Absolutely. Being able to put a a mask on a bear and have the bear be okay and enjoy the smell of chocolate suddenly makes my preschooler very keen to to have the same experience. Absolutely. And the other thing is imaginal rehearsal and getting them out of their head. Well, that's the storytelling, isn't it? It's storytelling, yeah. It's externalising it. Another good book is uh, Linda Thompson, Harry the Hypnopotamus. What I can do is find those books and I can put links to them in the show notes. As, as an aside there, the uh, names of all the characters in there are names of all the well-known hypnotherapists in the USA. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so Harry the Hypnopotamus and Linda Gazelle is Linda Thompson. Um, I see. And, uh, They've made cameos in yes, the book. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> when you're talking storytelling, are you talking about telling the story before they come into hospital or having it be a part of what they're going through whilst they're in hospital? Definitely beforehand. So you're instructing them on what to expect in a safe situation. What I do with my work is it's often a bit too confronting for the child to say, you're going to have this and this is going to happen to you. So what you do is you, you externalise it by saying, let's think of a, a character. Who would you like who's going to hospital? So they might pick Donald Duck. And so Donald Duck's going to hospital and what? how would he be feeling? Well, he might be feeling a bit nervous. And then what can we do to help Donald feel more comfortable? Well... We could tell him a story about someone who's going to have a really nice experience at hospital. Oh, what what could happen? So, you know, Donald turns up and there's nice people that greet him and they reassure him where to go and, you know, it's going to be okay if he takes the wrong turn and then he makes his way up with his mummy, Mrs Duck. So all of this stuff, so you're, you're making it not about them, you're making it about the character. If I can just recap, we can give them as much detail about what's going to happen. Yep. We could create a story where it's a character and when they're externalising the experience. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else to discuss with preschoolers before they come in for a procedure? Do you use Emla if you're doing a venipuncture? I do, mm. yes. I would, just, I would describe that. You know. mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can use as a technique in any stories as well which would be useful for that, which is one of the things children can also do to stop things hurting is to imagine their skin growing thicker right on their arm or wherever they are getting the shot. They can make their brain imagine that the skin is getting as thick as a thick baseball glove, like layers and layers of leather piled 
on top of one another. So thick and made of special stuff that it doesn't feel a thing. You might not even notice a needle going in. And it just goes on. But you can use all sorts of techniques. You can lose glove anesthesia. Dissociation is great. Yeah, what do you mean by dissociation? You know, when you have been reading a good book, you forget about your body. You, know, you really get absorbed in the story and what the characters are doing. And you simply take the wrist and say, just hold your hand out there. And then you play around here, slowly letting go with the fingers. And talking about the feeling going up the arm to the shoulder and timing it with their breathing. When you finally take your hand away, isn't it interesting how the, the hand can sit up there kind of surveying the world? And perhaps you can put that hand and that arm, not your arm, but put that hand and that arm out here and forget about it while I do what I have to do. Ah, so you dissociate them from their own part mm. of their body. It takes a few minutes. You first of all sort of bring their focus into their hand yeah. Yeah. and then <clears throat> take their focus up their arm, up into their shoulder. Basically, that's it. And, and you bring the focus up here with the breathing as you spreads up your arm and down through your body all the way down. And then you, you're letting go very lightly until you can just feel the hairs on the wrist and then just the warmth of the skin next to your fingers. And then when you finally say, isn't it interesting how the hand can sit up there all by itself? It's an easy technique to learn, but it's very powerful. It's excellent. So then you've demonstrated to them confidently that they really have no idea what their hand is doing. Mm. And then you're very careful in the words after that. You're taking the hand mm not your hand. So you're not letting your words reconnect the hand mm. with their body mm. in their mind. Absolutely. So the snowman is a good one. You could say to them, have you ever been to the snow? They may or may not have, or have you been somewhere where it's cold? If so, for little kids, you could say, and would you like to build a snowman? Let's go do that now. Let's get the snow and build a ball and another one over it. Let's put the carrot and the nose and the sticks. Yep. You're miming all of this as you're doing this. So you're physically yes. doing the actions to building the snowman as you're going. Well, normally I wouldn't, but you can if you want to. Sometimes that's a part of it, isn't it, yes. in terms of getting them into the moment. So this is what hypnotherapy basically is. Mm. It's three elements to it. It's dissociation, it's absorption, and then it's responsivity. So you're moving from a wide-angle lens to a narrow-angle lens. Mm. And you're moving from a state of association to a state of dissociation. And then your responsivity goes from being in the conscious world to being in the unconscious world using your imagination. So with the snowman, you want to get them there in the snow, building the snow, and then it's cold when they touch it. And then that cold can then be transferred up their arm and then isn't it tingling a bit. And then before you know it, the needle's in. An example of um, how powerful the arm catalepsy is. I had one master's level student and I was demonstrating this and she had eyes open watching a hand and then she got this look of absolute terror on her face as the hand came up toward her face. And I said, it's your hand, it's okay, close your eyes and just go into trance. It's very powerful actually and you can actually then transfer that numbness to any other part of the body through a magic wand or through that finger. I've seen that with the magic glove technique. With the magic glove you just transfer it so and that lovely tingling feeling that you're feeling all over you can now touch the other hand and it's almost as if it jumps across to the other hand. I wonder how you will experience it. Oh and back to that Ericksonian I wonder how. Yeah, yes I nice. wonder how. 
And do you normally use the dorsum for your IV or do you go for the ACF? I prefer to use the dorsum of the hand. But that's much easier to dissociate and to anaesthetise than transferring it to the ACF. Yeah, absolutely. Dorsum is much easier. The, the problem is when you get to the teenagers who've got true needle fear or phobia, then that's a whole new different kettle of fish. I'll come back to that. But just before I do, if there are anaesthetists who do want to learn some of these techniques, is there anywhere they can go? They can come and do the training through the Australian Society of Hypnosis. We would love to train them. We've got a federal course which is very affordable and open to all APRA-trained registered practitioners. It's very professional friendly too in that most of it is done mm. online. So you can yeah. choose when and where you do your study and then there are block releases of a couple of days where someone will come to your area or you can go to a central area and have some uh, practical experience and feedback. Uh, yeah, I think for anaesthetists it'll be an amazing adjunct to what they're doing because Pretty much you're all doing most of it anyway. It's just it formalises in your mind what you're actually doing and it just gives you an extra tool in your toolbox. And hopefully a chance to practice in a less threatening environment. It is very useful to demonstrate hypnosis at a pre-clinical appointment in the rooms or something like that. And at the same time, having induced trance, you give some post-hypnotic suggestions. Like next time you see me, when I put my hand on your shoulder and stroke your arm, you'll immediately go asleep just as you are now and all the feeling will go out of your hand, whichever hand it is. And That's very, very powerful what James is saying, post-hypnotic suggestion. So we use that all of the time to anchor and to bring back feelings that we use in our sessions and the recordings that we give. And we also teach kids self-hypnosis, which is very powerful. And that's another technique they can use in the induction room if they're starting to get really heightened or in the waiting room before they can do their self-hypnosis, put themselves in and out of trance without a recording device, give themselves their st statement and do the imagination, take themselves out of trance and then go in. So I do that a lot with my patients who have fear of medical procedures. I know this is not an uncommon experience, but I've had a few patients who are coming back for their second anaesthetic and who may have had a slightly less than smooth induction the first time. Maybe they were a very young child. Maybe they were pinned down. Maybe they were induced without their parents in the room. Uh, and I, I recall one particular child who was fine. But as soon as they came up the corridor towards the theatre, they completely lost it. Mm. To me, in my untrained mind, I thought it's brought back something. The whole theatre complex could hear this child screaming. Yeah, so that's a very interesting case. So when you experience trauma, the brain experiences it as happening now rather than putting it into a folder that says happened in the past. So if you haven't processed that and you haven't had an opportunity to put it back into the happened in past folder, what happens is when you see that experience again, it reactivates those traumatic experiences and that's probably what was happening to that child. So it would have been important for that child to have had a conversation about what had happened previously and then some processing of those traumatic memories and then assisting that child to self-soothe and manage and have some techniques and tools in their toolbox so that when they did come up to that situation again, they may feel a bit nervous, but they know what to do. So the amygdala is not firing. So that child's amygdala would have just been going, 
danger, 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 saber-toothed tiger in front of me, I'm seeing it again and not knowing what to do with all of those feelings that have been too. So two questions come to mind from that. One is just say you've identified that or a parent or a practitioner has identified that. Who can they go and see about that preparation for the next time? What type of health professional do they see? How would they find that practitioner? And then the other question I had was, if you don't have time to go and get that input, what are your next steps? So let's go back to the first one. Where do people find those practitioners? So you can look on the Australian Society of Hypnosis website. There's a list of practitioners who are APA registered practitioners, usually doctors, dentists, psychologists who do hypnotherapy and that it'll have their areas of expertise. If it's a real niche problem, you, you can just contact the Australian Society of Hypnosis Federal Office and uh, they will put you in touch with somebody in the particular state who is able to guide you more closely. And ideally, if your child's had already one procedure and it was quite traumatic and they're going for another one, how much lead time do you want to give them? Well, depends the severity. So I've got patients who had severe needle phobia. I was able to assist them to have blood taken, but that took about eight sessions. So the initial history taking and then six weekly sessions, and then we had the blood taken and then we had a follow-up session. So that takes a couple of months. Sometimes you only need one or two sessions. It really depends on what's driving it. You've got to have a good understanding of psychodynamics and what's actually underpinning their fears because it's not always straightforward. It may be something that's happening internally, might be something that's contributed externally out of the family, the school, and then you've got to kind of deal with the whole package. i just add to that, Annette, an experience I had with a mature lady, absolute terrible dental phobia. And she broke a tooth, had to have treatment. And during the treatment, she was very restless. And I assured both of us that there was no pain. And when I'd finished, she apologised for being such a bad patient. But she said, every time you turned on the drill, I felt pain. You think about that. When she spoke like that, it made me recognise that she had a slight New Zealand accent still. And I said, you remember the murder house? Now, the murder house was what they used to call the school dental service in New Zealand. That's a terrible name. This is a woman who was probably in her 50s. And these children all grew up having free dental care at school. But the therapists, I'm sorry, I don't mean to denigrate them, but they were only given two years training. So they weren't permitted to use local anaesthetic because drilling baby teeth doesn't hurt. And, of course, these kids all had painful experiences with their deciduous teeth being treated. And she started to cry. And she said, I'm so angry with myself for letting them do that to me, letting them make her so frightened. And she came back a couple of weeks later and said, you'd be so proud of me. My pulse didn't even change coming up the stairs. Wow. So it can be a one session uh, desensitization, just if you press the right buttons. So what about coming back to the other question that I had, you know, what if you do have a child that has been sensitized from previous procedures and you do need to get something done, it's urgent treatment and they are firing their amygdala, what can you do in that situation? Well, you need to come up with some antidotes for that. So the most important thing is to engage with the child. So 
give me an example of what's happening. This child who we heard screaming coming up the corridor, we didn't do hypnosis. We ended up doing the anaesthetic thing where we pre-medded her and we, we kept her mum in the room. We dimmed the lights. I said, this is really upsetting or something like that. Yeah, I said, good. would you feel happy about having some medicine that's just going to help take the edge off things now? It's just so that hopefully it will numb you a little bit and then we can come back and do this. And she agreed to that. Good. And she took the pre-med. We just sat her in the anesthetic room with her mum with dim lights for 15 minutes while the medications worked. And then we came in and got a cannula in and off we went. Yeah. So can I unpack that for you, what you did? Yes, please. So the principles of what you did were really very good. So when someone's very distressed, you have to meet them where they are. You, you have to validate their experience. So what you did was you said, I can see you're very distressed. So immediately they go, oh, this person understands what I'm going through. Then what you did was you then dim the lights, you got their parent. So you then brought in things that decrease arousal levels. So those are all self-soothing things that are very unconsciously already making them feel more relaxed. And then you took them out of their mind to another place. You get them to think about their favourite TV show or what's your footy team. And so you get them to go out of the experience they're in now to go somewhere else, which is not as frightening. And you get them to start to think and talk about that sort of stuff so that they're distracted from what's happening. And then you can start to use the other techniques too that you normally do. So that that's what you did just to unpack it. Oh, great. That's good. Thanks for unpacking that. That's really useful. I hope that helps. I was talking to someone recently who was for the COVID getting their children tested. They said that their child was fine for about the sixth or seventh test, but then by the eighth test was just, no, not having a bar mm. of it. And then when they came to theatre, just was transferred to everything. Mm. Don't want anything in my nose. Don't want people touching my hands. I used to do anesthesia for children having radiotherapy and having to have an anesthetic every day. They'd be okay for the first few weeks. Mm. And then they just slowly get triggered by something. So what can we do as health practitioners who are potentially looking after children for repeat or multiple procedures to try and minimize this kind of wind up? Well, teaching the children control is important because part of the issue is loss of control or perceived loss of control. Yeah. They're being dominated by the system. Now they need to undergo the procedures, but whatever control you can give them is going to help. And that's where I like mm -hmm. to teach them that um, catalepsy and you can go off somewhere else. You can just put yourself into trance and maybe, as Annette said, having a story on the headphones or just listen to some music, favourite music something to take you away from reality. I agree. It's a complex question. If you've had multiple negative experiences, then there may or may not be a cumulative effect of trauma and anxiety. So you want to try and make each experience as positive as you can for the child so that there's not this stack up of stuff happening. So that that's the first thing. Prevention is much better than cure. If you get to a point where that child is very, very distressed and clearly there's some sort of step up that's happened in their mind or their experiences and then suddenly everything's just, I don't want to do it. So it's tricky if they're in the induction room and depending on the age, 
in my experience, it's much harder with teenagers and older teenagers than it is with younger kids. So that patient needs to, if they can, see a therapist as soon as possible so that you can change that trajectory because small changes in the arc can change their experience later on. This patient that I saw recently who has now successfully had his COVID-19 vaccination, he had a terrible experience with an injection at the school, hearing everyone screaming and looking at everyone fainting, and it was just an awful experience. So they used to actually just go to the very experienced doctor in and out, no nonsense, no fuss. So then what I had to do was actually take them back to that sense of autonomy and control say, look, you knew how to do it before. We're just going to remind you how well you can do it. We then went through a process of psychoeducation, imaginal rehearsal, self-talk, and we went through every step of what was going to happen on the day of the vaccination, starting from when they woke up to every point along the way. What are you going to wear? Catching the public transport there, sitting in the doctor's room. Are you going to have it in the left arm, right arm, and what things they could do? So if they're self-talk statements, listening to music. So just everything was all planned on a piece of paper, rehearsed, imagined. And then we did hypnosis along the way with several recordings. But the early ones were all around autonomy and ego strengthening so that there was a sense of I can rather than I can't built up first. And then we brought the needle into it after that. Went through, not a problem, communicated with the doctor, had it, not a big deal, not a fuss. Yeah, great to hear the process and what's involved. Annette and I talked about this before, but the use of words, we don't understand completely how anaesthetics work. But are there things that we should be doing or not doing when we have patients who are anaesthetised on the table? You have to be very careful the words you use. So when I was in theatre, I always used to say, once I knew about hypnosis and stuff, their unconscious is wide open. And I want us all to be very mindful. If you wouldn't say that to them when they're awake, don't say it to them when they're anaesthetized. Well, with, with sedation, I always encourage my colleagues to be very positive. If something did go wrong, you say, well, we've got a little setback here, but it just takes us slightly longer to do the job. And just assume the patient is going to be listening and make all your comments positive reinforce the fact that everything went really well and anything that we need to talk about we'll talk about later but we're very happy with what's happened and you'll be so comfortable afterwards you won't be concerned about coming back for any future treatment mm. just normal conversational thing between the professionals in the room yeah absolutely Dabney Ewan who's a surgeon in America who is a brilliant clinical hypnotherapist and he gives many, many case scenarios of things that have been said under anaesthesia that can have an effect when the patient is awake. And I mean, this really just speaks to good professional practice. But let's illustrate with some examples. For example, oh my gosh, how can this patient have pain? I've gone in there and I've looked and there's no reason for it. It's all in their head. The older lady who was rather overweight and was in for a tummy tuck and afterwards she went in for her check and said, look, I want you to refer me to somebody else for future care. She said, for some reason, I just don't like you anymore. And the surgeon was quite concerned about this. And he said, well, you know, maybe something was said during the anaesthetic. So he encouraged her to have some hypnosis. And under hypnosis, 
She remembered him saying, if she wasn't so damn fat, we would have finished 20 minutes ago. I mean, anaesthetists communicate all the time. You guys are experts in communication. This is just tweaking it so that... Becoming more aware of the language. Exactly. You have to be very careful because sometimes we do have patients who have very high BMIs Mm. and we're moving them and and people naturally may say, oh... God, she's heavy. Yeah, or something like that. It's personal. That's when it gets heard. It starts before that. You know, we we get the dressing gown on with the eyes at the back so you can see your, you know, your bonds undies or whatever. Very vulnerable at that stage. And you've, and so you're in a position of powerlessness. You know, you get wheeled in and, and suddenly there's some expert there. So your unconscious becomes quite open to suggestions. So you have to be very careful. I just want to recap on a few of the things that we've talked about because I think we've covered a lot. We've talked about providing children with as much information as possible and for some of them making it as specific as possible, maintaining that sense of autonomy for them and encouraging that by going through stories where they externalise and talk about another character rather than themselves because that might be less intimidating. We talked about a, a number of resources, therapists in particular, and they can be found through the ASH website, which I'll put a link to. And there's also courses there for anaesthetists or any other medical or health practitioner if they want to learn some of these skills so that they can help look after these children or, in fact, adults as well with any of these issues. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, the only thing I'd like to say is to talk about the anaesthetist. May I give some suggestions how parents might like to talk about the anaesthetists and the language they might like yeah, to say? Yeah, that's a great idea, yeah. I thought parents might like to say that the anaesthetist is like a magician who has all sorts of magic to help you, the magic dream person that's going to help put them into a beautiful sleep where they can enjoy the land of dreams or go to playland where there might be some special presents waiting for them. And they're experts in helping kids go to that lovely dreamland. So it's a way of reframing the anaesthetist as someone who's a magician who's got all sorts of magic. I wouldn't use the word tricks because that's then saying to them that that's going to trick their unconscious, which I wouldn't use that. So that's why I was very careful saying that they've got all kinds of magic to help you. Words really do matter. I've got a preschooler at the moment and she's very caught up in that concept of is tricking the same as lying? The words are very, very important actually and and even one word can make a big difference and this is why I said I know you feel frightened but you'll be taken care of is quite different from saying you shouldn't be frightened because telling people they shouldn't feel something rarely stops them from feeling it. I'm very careful in my wording. I go through and I do an individualised script for everybody So I don't use the word pain very often at all. I use, and you can feel more and more comfortable. Because if you say, don't think of a pink elephant, what do you do? You think of a pink elephant. When you think about hypnosis, you think it's easy because you just click and see a YouTube video. But even now as a president, the more I know, the more I realise I don't know. But you've got to be careful because especially with complex patients, you can induce ab reactions. So you need to know what you're doing. I think we need to reinforce the difference between hypnosis and hypnotherapy too, Annette. Yeah, absolutely. Hypnosis is not difficult at all, but, but the therapy part of it is the challenging area. Induction of hypnosis is not difficult for the great majority of patients, but uh, the therapy is challenging. 
You mentioned the courses before that are run through the Australian Society of Hypnosis. Would they also teach about the words to use and not use? Absolutely, yes. There's all sorts of modules. The training is excellent. Barry Evans is our coordinator. I did my training with him and he's always open for questions and answers. Yes, we generally have a conference each year plus other courses and we have case presentations, discuss uh, various options and how to write a script, how to develop a script. We also have webinars. So if you join, you get 12 webinars for free throughout the year. And some of those are actually supervision where they can actually discuss cases. I did a podcast recently on supervision because we don't have a lot of that in medicine. The course has these as part of the modules where there may be six or seven students all come online at the same time and they can discuss the cases they've been working with or problems they might have had and everybody gets some feedback off the others. Uh, it's very, very good yeah. interactional learning. This is great because not only does it teach people about hypnosis, but also hopefully develops a culture of supervision. It does. And when you do the course, there'll be people that put their hand up saying, I'm a supervisor and I'm open for supervision. I have a very experienced clinical supervisor. If I need to, I can discuss complex patients with. I mean, it's very reassuring to actually have someone who's been there, done that. You need that support. Oh, well, fantastic. You've tied up two of my favourite topics. It has really been fascinating unpacking. As you say, we communicate all the time. And the more I go to talks or talk with people in the field, the more you learn to hopefully finesse your own technique. There's so much research in this area. If you use hypnotherapy prior to surgery, you can have a much better outcome, less anaesthetic agents in induction and all sorts of post-operative benefits. It's a win-win for everybody, so it's given. It just needs to be utilised, that's all. We're passionate about the use of hypnosis for helping patients. That's been really, really yeah. wonderful. I've learnt a lot from this conversation. I, I hope other people find it useful. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful getting to know you both and thank you for this conversation. See you, Susie. Lovely to meet you and thank you for giving us this opportunity. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing those insights from experts who truly care about getting patients through their procedures as comfortably as possible. It was great unpacking the theory behind why I love using chocolate so much. As mentioned at the start, we have some exclusive offers for ASA members. During the episode, we talked about the Australian Society of Hypnosis and the courses they offer, as well as their regular webinars and annual conference. Well, the first offer is that if you are an ASA member and are interested in becoming a member of the Australian Society of Hypnosis, then you can do so and receive a $20 discount off the membership fee for the Australian Society of Hypnosis. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes so you can find out a little bit more about them. If you're interested in taking up this offer, then please do get in contact with us at the ASA on asa at asa.org.au. The other exclusive offer is that the Australian Society of Hypnosis will be holding a webinar just for ASA members. We're hoping that it's going to be in the next few months. Like almost all of our webinars, the registration for this will be complimentary for all ASA members. So keep an eye out for that in the events email or check out the ASA events page on our website to see if registration has opened. Again, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I do hope I'll see you at the webinar where we can learn more about hypnosis and have an opportunity to ask more questions of the experts. Time for you to ask the questions rather than me. All right, until then, I hope you're staying safe out there. 
This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa at asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes, and of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening.